And then on the Thursday, talking to Marty through tears, choking out words, he said she, she just collapsed. Nessa's last words were, Honey, I think I'm going to faint. And she fell into Marty's arms. But more significantly, she fell into the arms of her Father in heaven. I asked Marty if I could share that with you this afternoon and Marty's response was, whatever serves to lift Jesus' name higher. Two weekends ago, we gathered many of us for a camp at Scott's Head where we looked at the book of Ruth. We read Naomi, uh, bereaved with two daughters, saying this, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. There is sadness, there is pain, there is grief, there is suffering. And Naomi is, in chapter 1, bitter. But as time goes on, we learn that God will repay Ruth, her daughter-in-law, for trusting in the God who is real and seeking refuge under his wings. And the book reminds us that in grief, there is hope if we turn to God. If we turn to God. On that Sunday night after the camp, Al Stewart spoke to the 45 or so of us who were able to make it out again after the camp on John chapter 11, the account of the death of his good friend Lazarus. And you might remember that in that account there is the shortest verse in the Bible which says simply, Jesus wept. Jesus is deeply moved at the death of his beloved friend. But Jesus says to them, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will not die. You see, there is hope in the midst of distress. And over the last few weeks, as we've looked at Matthew, Jesus preparing his followers for what is about to happen, we're told of the greatest distress in the history of the world that is about to come upon them. We're told of the destruction of the temple, which is really the end of the way of life of sacrificing at the temple because it's to be replaced by Jesus the destruction of the temple will be the destruction of his body, but after the distress will come resurrection. And then the Son of Man will come to the Ancient of Days. He'll come into the presence of God and he'll be given a kingdom and he will rule over that kingdom for good. 
kingdom where there will be no more pain or suffering, no more mourning or death, no tears in the kingdom of heaven. And friends, as we look at this passage in Matthew 26, just briefly tonight, I think we get these two camera angles. The angle of distress and the angle of hope. The angle of evil and the angle of good. And we know deep down, don't we, that that death is wrong. It's not right to have a life cut short. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. But there are two angles here. Have a look at it with me, just briefly. In the first paragraph, after Jesus had been saying all these things in 24 and 25, he said, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. There is a picture of Jesus making a promise, and it's not the first time he's made this promise. He said it again and again and again that the Son of Man will go to Jerusalem. He'll be rejected by the chief priests and the elders. He'll be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again. Jesus knows what's happening. And yet the other angle shows us the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace And they're scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. What evil, evil behaviour. We read on the account of Jesus being in the home of Simon the leper, presumably the leper that had been healed. And a woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she pours on his head as he's reclining at the table And there's indignation from the disciples. But Jesus responds saying that she has done a beautiful thing. Because what she has done is prepare Jesus for burial. I don't know of any other account where you prepare a person before they have died for burial. But Jesus knows what is coming. On the other hand, in the next paragraph, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, goes to the chief priests and asks, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? And so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And so then he went on to look for an opportunity to hand him over. 30 pieces of silver. Jesus, the Messiah, come into this world to bring in the kingdom of God is handed over for 30 pieces of silver and even the chief priests know that that's blood money in chapter 27 we hear them speaking of the fact that it's blood money so it can't be left in the temple never mind the fact that they've conspired to kill him there is great evil at work in the crucifixion of Jesus And yet Jesus says in the next paragraph, my appointed time is near. He's not caught unawares. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. He tells them to say. And then a little later, 
We read that the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he'd never been born. See, two camera angles. This is the appointed time. This will happen at the Passover. These are the things that must take place. Jesus is not caught unawares. And yet wicked men conspire against him. One of his own hands him over for 30 pieces of silver. And then there's the account of what we call the Lord's Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink with you, new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's very important, I think, that we understand the context of what's going on. And you can hardly miss it. Again and again and again, we're told that these things are happening during the Passover. And for those of you who might have been with us when we looked at Exodus chapter 13, I think it was last year, though they blur a little bit at the moment, we saw the original Passover. The Passover where God rescued the people of Israel by an angel of death passing over every house where they'd painted the blood of the lamb on the doorposts. And that then became the birthday of the nation of Israel. And they celebrated a party called the Passover every year. And they would take bread and they would take wine. And they would look back to the birth of their nation that came through the blood of the Lamb. That's what Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. It's a birthday celebration. God's people have come to be God's chosen nation, his treasured possession, a holy people through the Passover. And in every Jewish home, they'd be gathered around the table and a young child would ask the father, what does this mean? And he'd point back to those events. But not this time. We don't hear of Jesus pointing back to any event. He points to himself. He says, this is my body. This is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. At this point, Jesus completely flips the perspective of the Passover. It was always, not pointing backwards, but ultimately fulfilled looking forwards. Jesus is the one who is the Lamb of God. It's his blood that will be for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus will drink again with us in his Father's kingdom. Friends, in a moment, we're going to share together in a Passover kind of 
meal, what we call the Lord's Supper. We've got some bread and some wine. It's not really wine. It's grape juice. Um, and it's nothing like the bread they would have had. And there's some that's gluten-free. But we're going to remember Jesus. Not simply looking backwards, but in anticipation of sharing together with Ness in the kingdom of heaven. But let me encourage you with a couple of things as I finish this. First of all, pain is real. It hurts. It hurts inside. Jesus himself in the garden, we'll see next week, says that his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Pain is real. Acknowledge the pain. Come before God in your pain. Share with one another in your pain. Next term, we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians, where we read that we do not grieve like the world grieves. Instead, we grieve in hope, resurrection hope. There's a big difference between a non-Christian and a Christian funeral. And that difference is the sure and certain hope of resurrection through Jesus. Jesus has been telling them all along that the Son of Man will come into his kingdom. He will be resurrected on the third day. And we base our hope for eternity on that fact. Not wishful thinking, but the promise of God made certain through the resurrection of Jesus. So our hope is real. Our pain is hard. Our hope is real. It's true. So in the light of that, let our love be real. Listen to one another. Talk with one another. Look to Jesus. Give each other space. We'll all be different. Things will change. We can give practical help. We can take care of one another. We can witness to our community. We can provide support for Marty, Elise and Ben, for Kai and Anna, for Tate, for Millie, for Pam, for Yvonne, for others in the family. In fact, if you have a look on the back of your handouts, you'll notice that we're giving you the opportunity to give a love offering to Marty and his family that might be used in any way that is helpful. And I encourage you to take up that opportunity.